I'm Zach Dunlap, pastor of Multisite at Birmingham and Berkeley First. Welcome to Church Folks, the new podcast where we interview folks from our church community about who they are and what God is doing in their lives. Throughout the Bible, people are encouraged to bear witness to what they have seen and heard. Continuing in that tradition, this podcast offers a forum for people to get to know one another and be inspired. Our hope is that the stories of these church folks empower you to share your stories, to inspire others, and to be a part of beloved community together. I am here today with Beverly Hannett Price, who has been teaching for 63 years and the most recent 51 of those at Detroit Country Day School. Beverly, I hear you have some stories to share oh, with us today. many, many. And I want to thank you for inviting me to share some of my stories and my love for the Methodist faith and our church. In 1963, 1963, I happened to come to Birmingham because my then husband, John, and I had taken teaching positions in Birmingham, he at Detroit Country Day, and I at Derby. And we were met by Ozzy and Ellie Link, longtime members of the church. And it was August. We were looking at a little home to buy. We bought a home in Beverly Hills for $24,000 on Dunblane right off of Southfield. Can you imagine? I think the lots are going for about 10 times that these oh, days. <laughs> I am sure. Ozzy, Ozzy yes. said, Beverly and John, I want you to come to the ice cream social, the First United Methodist Church in Birmingham. Every August had an ice cream social and, and raised ice cream store supplied the ice cream. Well, John and I loved ice cream, so we had young our young daughter, Penny, with us. And so beautiful, beautiful, sunny Saturday afternoon, early evening on the lawn of the church was the ice cream social. And as he said, you ought to come, beautiful church um, there on Maple on Sunday, tomorrow. Check out the church. Well, we fell in love. Beverly, tell us what it means to you to be a part of church community? To be a part of a greater than I, a singleton. I think as I look at the colors in the church and the faces of people in the church and the notes from the organ and the sound of voices raised in hymns singing, that I'm a part, come unto me, is in that great stained glass window that I face as I sit in the pew, come unto me. And that's the message I get. That's the message that brings me to be with others, to learn to go out then and to share with my life and the people in my life, that faith. I can't tell you how wonderful sitting in a sanctuary, a church, 
I love my classroom, love my home, my neighborhood, my community. But for Sunday service to sit in a space that is quiet, but then filled with, oh, Doris Hall's incredible organ music, and Casey leading our choir, watching the choir parade in in their robes, watching the young children come in when we have communion. And that's something that has just started recently, that all of the children in Sunday school, when we do have communion service once a month, will come in by their classes. And there's something so embracing about sharing that very special service, communion, with the youngest ones of our church, and even the older members of the church who can't walk up to the front. There are our servers who will bring the bread and the, and the juice to the, oh, that is um, so special. Church is like God wrapping its his arms around us. It's merrymates. It's ushering. It's Christian book club. It's Sarah circles. It's Jesus at the Oscars. It's gathering in fellowship hall after a service to visit with friends or to walk up to someone who's brand new in the church and has come to look the service over to introduce myself and to welcome that person to our church. Um, church has always been family. Zach, I remember during Lent when we would have a gathering of the members for dinner, a potluck. We all brought a dish to serve. They were put out on long tables and tables, long tables were set up in fellowship hall. Um, babysitting service was provided and we would have a potluck supper together. And then at a designated time, 20 after seven, maybe go into the sanctuary for a service that was that was combining life a meal eating with friends and strangers and then going in to hear a message about about the lord beverly i'm told you have a fantastic story of how you met your husband would you mind sharing that with us today I'd mentioned earlier that my um, former husband, John Hannett, and I had come to Birmingham with teaching jobs, new teaching jobs. And after 40 years of marriage, um, Mr. Hannett fell in love with a woman in his real estate company and wanted a divorce, and we were divorced. I, of course, remained um, at the church. Now... It was 1993. It was a Sunday. Zach, the coincidence of this is incredible. You have to understand the good Lord had uh, his way in this situation. I always attended the 930 service, still do to this day. But on that March Sunday, I had a set of 
papers. I had to correct because on Monday when I went to school, grades had to be turned in for the third marking period. And I had these one set, this one set I needed to grade. And I came down the stairs at 10 after, quarter after nine to go to church. And I looked at the papers on the kitchen table as I made my way to the garage. And I said, wait a minute. If I sit down right now and correct half a dozen papers, I can get almost half that set done and we'll only have that rest due the afternoon that evening. And so I sat down and I ended up going to the 11 o'clock service. Never go to the 11 o'clock service. Larry Price was in town visiting his mother. And he asked, he was staying at the old village inn, and he asked at the desk, where is there a Presbyterian church that I can attend? I want to go to service. And they said, you can't miss it. It's the Red Brick Church uh, right up Maple Road. It's going to be right there on your left. And so Larry left and went to church. Now, he was running a little late, so he didn't past the front of the church to see what church it was. It was a red brick church that loomed very large right there. So he went in the parking lot immediate and entered the church, uh, was ushered down to the third or fourth pew and took a seat. After church, I was on my way home across Fellowship Hall after the service on my way to my car to return home. And a man stopped me and he said, Beverly, the woman that was going to serve tea after the service, we always set up a very large table with a lace tablecloth, coffee at one end, tea at the other, arrangement of fresh flowers on the table. People gathered and had coffee and tea. And he said, the lady, the woman didn't show up any way you could help us. I said, I would be glad to. So I sat down at the coffee end of the table. Larry happened to be seated. If you know, there's a ritual of coming in. There's a part of the service where the minister says, uh, would you please sign the register and pass it down so anyone who is new, you can say hello to and meet. And so Larry was handed this. He put down his name and that he was a guest. Now, Mary Lou and Bill Corba were sitting next to him, saw that he had marked guest, and they said to him, why don't you join us for a cup of coffee in Love Fellowship it. Hall? And so Larry made his way to Fellowship Hall. Bill and Mary Lou come in with this young man, charming, well-groomed, smile on his face, comes in and they all, we all, they, I pour coffee, they have coffee and they stand and we talk, we begin to talk and we got onto the topic of cars and Larry had driven his mother. What year was it, Larry? 19, what, what was the year of your mother's car? 67. It had a bench seat in the front, you know, like a bus seat. Uh -huh. There was no console between front seat and the passenger seat. So what, what, what was it? And then, and then she can pick up with that sentence. So it was a 67. 
a okay. Nova, a so, Chevy. So too. Larry had driven a, a nineteen sixty. This ant, like almost antique car, because this is ninety three, ninety three, and so we got to talking about cars, and they leave. Bill and Mary Lou leave. Larry leans over, Zach, Larry leans over the table and he looks down at me at the other end and he smiles and he has the most gorgeous, wonderful smile. Larry does have a gorgeous smile. Talks so intelligently. I was listening. I was listening. Now, my husband had asked me for a divorce and he was still living in the house because his lawyer said if he's paying, the mortgage, she can stay in the house. You are upstairs. a gracious woman, Beverly. Oh my goodness. So Mr. <laughs> Price and I end up talking outside of the church by his car. And he invites me to his room at the Hampton Inn to watch my student. This is basketball, March Madness, March Madness. Do you remember Chris Weber, J- Jalen, um, Rose and the current coach of University of Michigan's basketball team, the Fab Five, were playing in the tournament. And he invited, I love basketball. I talked to him about Chris Weber, Shane Webb, and B- Shane Battier being um, students at Country Day. Well, I said, why don't you come to my house? I have good. Wonderful set. We can watch. I couldn't go. My mother said, you never go to a man's room. I was going to say, that, that's, that's pretty bold of Larry. How? He just met you that day and he's how? inviting you up to his hotel room after I church. Know. Oh, my goodness. Well, Beverly said, no, can't do that. But you can come. I have a dog. As Larry meant star and stars bitten him three or four times. So he, I had a good dog, guard dog. And I didn't need a guard dog. At any rate... <laughs> He, we and I end up watching this fabulous game. And afterwards, he said, I'd like to take you out to dinner. What's your favorite place to eat? It was the Red Fox at Adiamos. Well, from that point in 1993 until 96, when we were married before 300 friends of the church, friends in our family, and our entire family in his mother, who died at 99, how many days from 100? Not many. At mine at 90, our two mothers were there in their beautiful suits, white gloves. Oh, my grandchildren, his three sons, my two daughters. Bill Ritter gave the the ceremony and I, we had so, I was so happy so happy so delighted and since then we he's taken me around the world he's allowed me to teach as long as I I love my teaching and it's been my life like you said 63 years so who brought us together how in heaven's name he and I would never have met you were at the wrong service. Wrong service. He was at the wrong church, visiting from out of town. Yeah, the Presbyterian. It's the Methodist church is the first red brick yep. church. Yeah. It just seemed like the stars aligned. The good Lord had a hand in it. And what but God has brought together, let no blessed. man put asunder. Absolutely. 
Beverly, what would you say to someone who who is maybe listening to this and 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 their life is 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 reeling after experiencing a divorce themselves and they're wondering about, you know, ever finding someone again or what that might look like or if that's even possible for them? What what would you say to someone who's thinking that right now? I say that the ch- you must always consider your church. Because the church offers not only solace for you, talks with your pastor, um, people in your church who are friends that can support you, but opportunities to doing all kinds of work. So the church offers you a place where you share similar values, where it is an atmosphere that supports love, supports friendship. I mean, that's what Christ was all about, that we find our way in life in a path that's good. Values, the church's values, our religion, our Methodist values, the hymns we sing are all supportive. And that's the first place you should look. So would it be too crass to say, if you're out there and you're looking for a good man or a good woman, uh, get your butt on into church? Absolutely. I'm a cheerleader. It's 1953. All right. Wholeheartedly agree. I love it. I love it. Beverly, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about your, your teaching career, too. I mean, 63 years. What changes have you seen in the profession over that time? Well, I don't find my students reading books, real books, as I grew up. You know, I began teaching when there weren't even paperbacks. They hadn't invented paperbacks. That seems unbelievable. But in my English classes, all the books that I read and learned from and went on to teach with were hardcover books for a dollar. Modern library, they were called. Not really big books, but... Do you the think- reading, it's the reading that is now taking a back seat mm. to playing video games on your phone, on your laptop. It is conversing over, oh my, and we get children who are so hurt by hateful, spiteful things that are said by their classmates or by others that they read. I mean, it is... We know that um, they shouldn't be as connected as they are Mm. with phones and with laptops because they're entering a world that, Zach, you and I and Larry have never, ever experienced. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't communicate like they can and use language was never allowed that they use with one another and hateful, spiteful things saying. But bullying and things bullying. like that, I mean, oh. it would be an, it would be an issue right at school. You know, you might have kids 50 years ago who were concerned about going to school and seeing a particular kid in a particular class or something. But now, right, it's, it's going on all the time, 24-7. Yes. It's in your yeah. pocket. And we really do need to look out for one another and make sure that we are um, speaking life and love um, into the Absolutely. lives of those around us and encouraging others to do the same. I think parents can play a huge role in somehow policing the the use of, 
the times. Like I, I tell my parents when I meet with parents of advisees or my students that um, they shouldn't be in a room, bedroom, upstairs with the doors shut because you really don't know what mm. is going on, whether they're using the phone or their laptop. They should be studying, doing their studying downstairs in the kitchen at the dining room table where you can see they do need ad, ad, parents who are helping them navigate these times and these rough waters. So I asked my parents to, and I talk to my students all the time, you've got to hasten to kindness and you've used language as that vehicle and not hurt others, put others down. Absolutely. Absolutely. So parents to offer that, that care and compassion, but also that supervision to keep an eye Absolutely. on your kids and know what they're doing. This has been an incredibly hard year for parents going through the pandemic. I know it's been an incredibly hard year for teachers too. What insights or encouragement <laughs> would you offer to teachers who might be thinking about transitioning into some other line of work after this year of pandemic? Oh, do not. The greatest joy in life is making a difference in someone's life. And that is what teachers do. Um, their parents have them in the mornings and for dinner, if the student is in school and then in athletics. It is teachers who can help guide who can offer advice, a listening, a listening ear. Do not give up on a vocation that allows you not only to make a difference in young people's life, but you can share your love. I, with my love of books and plays and poems, taking my students up to Stratford twice a year or to Meadowbrook, taking them down to listen in the balcony. We always get the seats way in the second balcony um, down at Orchestra Hall to listen to the, introduce them to the symphony. Um, the, the opportunity to t have some student come to you because they're embarrassed or afraid to talk with parents and you as an adult can help them. But teachers have summer vacation, either get a second job if you need money or go to college and get an, some more credits towards another degree because you can step up the, the ladder in salary or travel the world or camp out. Whatever it is, teachers have sp such vacations to recharge. Don't leave education. Stay with it. It is especially needed now in these times when our students have been depressed because they are so isolated socially. We really need more teachers with upbeat personalities and smiling, smiling. We can't embrace them. I used to hug my students. I used to stand at the door always to greet them as they left my room, telling them, I want you to look forward every day to coming to English class. 
come into this room and know we're just going to explore, explore ideas, explore your work, learning to write better and read better. So you're going to be better writers and speakers and readers and better human beings. Mm. 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 No other vocation offers the opportunity to make a difference in the next generation. So how can the rest of us, those who are not uh, teachers vocationally, how can we show greater appreciation for those who do teach? You talk to your your children. Find out what they're doing. What's your next project? What is your history teacher having you do? Or what is your English? What are you reading? Um, I'd love you tell me what you're reading. I'll read it during the day or at night when you're asleep and we can talk about ideas. Talk about you have as parents need to enter your child's life. Go to every athletic event that you can. So you've got something to talk about. Practice. What happened in practice today? Um, Talk about the game. Praise your child whenever they do something well. If papers come home with an A on it, 190, or an 80 when they've had 70s or 60s, Put it up on the refrigerator door and remind your child how well they're doing. A positive, upbeat, connected with their schoolwork, their teachers. Don't be afraid to email a teacher. Um, You see something happening at home, you let your teacher know, the child, your son or daughter's teacher or coach or coach, the school nurse contact if you see something because it's to get, it's the same thing that happens in church your pastor the staff your community of people can wrap their arms around whether it's your child your husband wife um whatever it is it's the community it's the sharing the inclusiveness that makes a difference in children's lives. Mm. So listen, read, get involved. Be involved. Oh, absolutely. Beverly, do you see your vocation as an extension of your faith? Put another way, how does your love for God in Christ impact how you do what you do? Well, Christ's message was love one another. Your neighbor as yourself. And so all my neighbors are my students. I wear a circle pin. Do you see the circle pin? Uh-huh. I wore it in high school. It was called a virgin pin. Well, I'm no longer a virgin. I have two daughters. However, I have worn a circle pin all of my life. And if you saw The Lion King, you know that the circle of life, the circle of love, and I tell my students, see this circle pin? Do you know what it really means to me? It's what happens in a classroom. If I, and I tell my, all my students this, if I can connect with you and share with you my love 
for language and books and learning to write better and read better and speak better. If you can buy in to my energy, my enthusiasm, my love for you, I have given my life. I've never wanted to do anything else with my life but teach. Never left the building wanting to do anything else. I can honestly say that in my vocation, I have never once had a bad day. If I in 63 can years? get my 63 years students to believe in mm. my style, which is traditional, and buy into my energy and my love that we will hold hands, I, the teacher and a student on the other, all the way around the room and our classroom will become a haven. You will want to come to English to love what we do in this classroom, which is filled with my students' work. Zach, I have my students do twice a year. I give them all 20 words a week to learn. So they learn 600 new vocabulary words. And we study every Friday, we go over the definitions and the etymologies of these words. Then they take a test every three weeks. But twice a year, I ask my students to create a living word. They take the vocabulary word and they create it in a way on a piece of paper that can be put up on the wall, a three-dimensional figure, something that communicates to someone looking at that work of art. They understand the meaning of the world. You would not, Zach, believe what has happened to my classroom. The former headmaster, when they built the new wing, came down and said, Beverly, I want to take you to a room. It's the largest classroom in the school. One whole wall is glass, and it overlooks the flag plaza with beautiful plantings, trees, bushes, and flowers with a circular brick driveway that comes up to the front of the school. Great pine trees. I can look in the fall to see the fall colors in the spring, the fresh leaves, the blossoms. It is breathtaking, breathtaking. It is an incredible classroom. And then you see these living words. One of my students' living word in an English class, he entered it in a, the American Scholastic Art Contest. It won districts. It won first place in the regional. It went to the nationals in New York City. It was selected won a gold medallion, and I was invited to Carnegie Hall in New York City with a student and his parents to receive the certificate and the gold medallion on the stage at Carnegie Hall. Can you believe that? But guess what happened after this? That particular piece of art was identified to be to represent 464 thousand pieces of art wow. that had been presented that year. It was selected to be taken to Washington, D.C., one of 50, put on display in the National 
education building in New York, in Washington, D.C. And when the year was over, this was just a few years ago, it came back and the boy, Jade, gave it to me to keep in my classroom. You know what it was? He went to Michael's. He bought a shelving shelf. He took the shelves out. He then stained the frame. Mm -hmm. He measured how high and how wide it was. He took the word claustrophobia. Oh, wow. And every slat of wood that made up the the letters for claustrophobia. Right now, not the same color because you never would have seen the word. Sure. But neon orange, lime green, fuchsia pink, gorgeous colors just pop right out at you. It's only this big. It's like the Mona Lisa, right? Sure. How sure. is this the greatest art piece <laughs> in the world? I think Do you know what I tell my students? Why we have to appreciate art, why we have to have religion in our lives. I was taken, Larry took me to um, all over the world. We're in Florence. And I enter a building where the statue of David is, our story of David and yep. Goliath. And I stood looking up at this nine foot statue. I tell my students, how is it that a human being could see in a hunk of marble that image that he was able, with a chisel and a hammer, create out of that marble this magnificent human form that was David? There has to be some divine inspiration that fills us. It's easy to love the loveliest. Mm. It is the hardest to love the ones who are. But that's our duty, to see in each individual the beauty that they represent, despite disfigurements, despite handicaps. That's so right. Each individual, each human on the face of this earth is uniquely created in the image of God Absolutely. and our God's beloved. Mm. And not only is it powerful for us to come to know that ourselves and to see that divine spark within us to be able to create art and, and to write and to make beautiful things in this world, but, but to see that in each and every person we meet, to see others as God's beloved created in his own image. And you can't not realize that without it having a tremendous impact on how you view those around you. Oh, Zach, and it's in church where we hear it and we learn it and we practice it. That's right. Through music, through fellowship, through the word, the preaching. One last question for you, Beverly. Um, I love, you know, what you do with words with your students. Can you teach us a word, a really fun and interesting word that maybe has fallen out of usage that uh, we can kind of put in our pockets and take with us today? <laughs> All right. 
let me see. Do you have any idea what the word pusillanimous means? Pusillanimous. Doesn't that sound like, whoa, multiple syllable? I have no idea. What does pusillanimous mean? Oh, Tell I'm going to let you look it up and learn because it's when you look at and say that you learn, not just hearing, because we learn through our eyes and we learn through our ears. Do you know, Zach, I'll give my students 20 words um, a week and I give them words that that are sociologically connected, psychologically, religion, all. We learn so much from. <laughs> he learned. You learned. All right, Zach, tell us. What did you learn? The Matt, word? our tech person, just looked it up for us. Pusillanimous. It's an adjective for yes. showing a lack of courage or determination. Absolutely. Timid. What we cannot have in our carrying our faith forward. Wow. We cannot be. So we must, we, 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 we cannot be timid. We have to. <laughs> oh, uh, we have to be active. Move forward, to be active, to be courageous, to teach, to listen, to learn, and to do life and share love together. Oh my, it is such a journey. We have been given our lives and let's do it in celebration of Christ's message to us. Well, let us never be pusillanimous. Let us <laughs> be courageous for Christ in all things. Absolutely. Beverly Hannon Price, it has been such a joy oh. to talk with you today. Thanks for sharing with us. Oh, you are so welcome. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Church Folks. Remember, the church has nothing to do with brick, mortar, or carpet. It's the people, the body of Christ from all over the world. This is just one of their stories. You can find out more about Birmingham and Berkeley First on our websites, fumcbirmingham.org and berkeleyfirst.org. Whether it's through our church or some other church, we hope you take the time to be a part of beloved community, grow in your faith, and share your stories. Peace.